Are you feeling at a loss when it comes to school IEPs and accommodations for your deaf and hard of hearing child? Or maybe you're having a hard time communicating with your IEP team? That is why I'm so excited to bring this episode to you today, where I sit down and chat with Dr. Joyce Kennedy <clears throat> all about school accommodations for deaf and hard of hearing kids. So Dr. Joyce Kennedy is a somewhat retired educator, her words, <laughs> and she is a certified teacher of the deaf, an adjunct part-time professor at Mount St. Vincent University. She's a learning strategist and consultant, and she is a workplace educator and entrepreneur. So Joyce lives and works in Canada, and Joyce's career in education, her whole career in education has been with students who are deaf and hard of hearing. And her career began at the residential school in Amherst, Nova Scotia, where she taught in the senior department for a number of years before moving to the vocational center as a life skills and job placement counselor. And her master's thesis was in the area of deafness and job skills. And her PhD dissertation was called Mitigating Marginalization, where she explored how teenagers who are deaf and hard of hearing were navigating inclusive settings. And today, she still teaches in the Educational Psychology Master's Program at Mount, Vince, Mount St. Vincent University, and she teaches courses specific to the education of deaf and hard of hearing students, as well as education assessment. And currently, as if that was not enough for Joyce to be doing right now, <laughs> Joyce and her daughter, Lee, are growing an education consultancy business called Education Advantage, where they offer educational assessments, tutoring, and are coming out with some online courses for students and parents and working to develop study ha habits and executive functioning skills. So Joyce has quite the resume. <laughs> and what I love about Joyce is that she has literally dedicated her entire career in education to helping deaf and hard of hearing kids at different levels and also helping to support their parents. So Joyce is a wealth of information and she is so encouraging to parents and she and I had the best conversation. And I want you to go grab a pen and paper if you don't have it right now because Joyce gives so many good tips about navigating the school system to you parents that you're gonna want to write it down. So. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Joyce Kennedy to the podcast. Hey, Mama. Welcome to Raising Deaf Kids. Do you want more ease in your daily life? Do you want to help your child learn language faster but have no idea where to start? Do you find yourself searching for how to learn sign language and best ways to practice speech goals? Hey, I'm Elaine. I'm a mom of three littles, two of whom are deaf. I remember when I received the hearing loss diagnosis for our child, there were so many decisions and information overload. I lacked clarity and confidence and yearned for ease and balance in our lives. It was then that I discovered strategies to support our kids' language development at home, and I even helped them learn language faster. I can't wait to share it all with you. So put down that to-do list, close out that ASL app for now, and let's get started. Have you been thinking about starting a podcast? 
maybe you've been listening to podcasts and thinking this podcast and thinking, hey, I can do that. So if you have been thinking of starting a podcast, then I have a treat for you. So my podcast coach, Stephanie Gass, is hosting a special live five-day challenge. That's right. I am not doing this podcasting thing on my own. I have a fantastic podcast coach who has helped me create a strategic and fun podcast that delivers all of this amazing content to my listeners twice a week. And because of Stephanie's programs, I've been able to quickly start and grow a podcast that aligns with the calling that God has put on my life. It's also fun and it's 100% doable with three little kids running around at my feet all the time. (laughs) So I wanted to invite Steph to quickly you know, jump on here and to share a little bit about her five-day free boot camp and how you can sign up today. So go ahead and listen to Steph. She'll tell you how to sign up for this amazing free boot camp. And I will put the link to sign up in the show notes. All right, Steph, take it away. What's up, new friend? I'm Steph Gass. I know you just heard a little bit about me, but I wanted to personally come on and invite you to the Profitable Podcast Bootcamp. This is a five-day challenge, so to speak, for those of you who are interested in podcasting or who already have a podcast and you wanna know how a podcast works to grow an audience or make money online. I promise you it's so worth your time. And this one hour per day live challenge is gonna give you everything you need to know about why podcasting works, how to make money from a podcast, how to make sales really easy, and so much more. We're giving away swag, door prizes. We even have scholarships to my courses and programs valued at over $10,000. So we just wanted to come on and invite you to be part of this challenge. Head right now over to stephaniegass.com slash bootcamp. That's stephaniegass.com slash bootcamp and get registered right away. You'll get entered to win free swag. And the best part of all is you're gonna learn how podcasting can potentially be a way for you to truly grow, make an impact and income in an online business and allow you to have that freedom and that fruit of not feeling like you are tied to social media 24 seven or having to do a hundred different things to figure out a way to be successful for the kingdom of God. This is going to lay all of those pieces out for you in alignment with your faith. Again, stephaniegass.com slash bootcamp. All right, welcome back to the Raising Deaf Kids podcast. And today I have Joyce on the podcast with me. Welcome, Joyce. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to be here. And And Joyce has been working. Yes, you've been working with deaf and hard of hearing kids and parents, from what I understand, for many, many years. Um, It's been pretty much your life's work. (laughs) Yeah. So if you can just give our parents who don't know you yet, like a little bit of an introduction and just kind of say how you've worked with in the deaf and hard of hearing world. Well, okay. Well, I got into this field more than 50 years ago, (laughs) probably closer to 55. (laughs) And I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. And I first started working in a residential school. So very quickly, I was thrown into working with senior students and 
having to learn to sign in order to communicate. And at that time, our philosophy at the school was very similar to a lot of philosophies. It was an oral philosophy, primarily based on a British model. And I guess I've always found that once you close the door, if you can't communicate, you can't teach. And so very quickly, I learned sign language. And I was also fortunate in that my brother-in-law, who was deaf, was also the principal of the school at that time. So every time I wrote out my resignation and put it on his desk, he said, well, let's check that tomorrow. <laughs> so, so here I am many decades later, still doing it. You know, I've worked in a lot of different um, scenarios. I've worked in a, you know, a residential school. I've been an itinerant teacher. I've worked in a vocational school for the deaf. I've done supervision. I've done assessment. I've done you name it, I've probably done it over the years. And so while I'm semi-retired, uh, I do still teach the occasional course in the master's program for here at in Halifax, which is uh, under the ed psych department of teaching students who are deaf and hard of hearing. So I'm currently uh, co-teaching with another uh, instructor and hopefully we'll be able to pass most of this on to her in the future. So yeah, I've been in the field for a while. I've seen so many changes. And one of the principal changes I've seen is how parents are now becoming such an important part of their child's education. And the days in which you handed over your five-year-old deaf child to a residential school and said, I'll see you in December are gone. And I hope they never return. I could never, ever have imagined doing that to my child. And so hopefully those are gone. And with that, we have other challenges. So if I had any message for your parents to take away from the session we're going to do today, it's you are your child's best advocate. You know your child better than any teacher who's come out of a program teaching one philosophy or another. And having been in this field for so long, I know that philosophies come and go. And with them, pe people get entrenched in a position. And don't let that happen to you. As a parent, ask the questions. Sometimes you don't know the questions to ask, but you are your child's best advocate. And um, I teach my teachers that. They have to listen to the parents. You have to help them get information, but you do have to listen to them. So, so given that, where would you like us to start? So I appreciate you working on behalf of the parents because that is, so, you know, I hear a lot of concerns about parents in kind of the area that we focus on on this podcast and what I like to focus on are raising deaf kids is creating good foundations. So we talk about creating, you know, good language foundations, communication foundations, whatever that is for your child. And we also talk about creating good school foundations because I figured in my experience with my own kids is when I created those good foundations and I could more easily build and the maintenance now looks a lot easier than the building at the beginning, but you've got to build first before, you know, you can maybe like have an easier time in the future. So, you know, 
one of the things that I think parents struggle with, especially parents who have the five-year-old or the first grader who are working with the school system for the first time, that they don't, they're not comfortable in their role necessarily of advocating yet. You know, this is probably a new role. I think most parents, most hearing parents, which is what I am, don't expect to have um, a deaf and hard of hearing child. And I think that's actually the statistic is like 90% of deaf and hard of hearing kids are born to hearing parents. And so we're kind of thrown into a role at the beginning that we like couldn't prepare for (laughs) and we weren't prepared for, you know, because you can't find out if your child has hearing loss until after they're born. So you have a baby, which was my experience. I had a baby and he was deaf from birth. And where do we go from there? And it was a whole process for me now because I built those foundations. Now my children are seven and five who have the hearing loss. We're, you know, the school's going well, we're doing well because I built those foundations at the beginning But I think a lot of parents don't even know what advocacy is, like what they're even supposed to be doing. So maybe we can start there. What is actually, what does it mean to be an advocate for your child? Like, what are you doing when you say advocate for them? Well, I guess I would ask parents to think back to a time when they knew something was right for their child. And then they were successful in having that happen for their child, whether it's getting a hearing test, whether it's knowing that the hearing aid isn't working, whether it's questioning what the professional is telling you from, from the time when the child is, is first diagnosed, I guess, parents, parents have a feeling and sometimes they're told that their feelings aren't right. Don't accept it. It's your feeling. You need to get the information. And most often you are correct. And so when I think of advocacy, I think of being that voice for your child and for yourself so that you are not dismissed. You are not ignored. You are not told you are crazy or don't have the understanding or the education or the right tools. Don't don't accept that put your foot out there and say, no, 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 this doesn't work. This is my child and I want what's best for my child. And I'll do everything in my power to get what's best. And it doesn't ever stop. I think from from the time when your child is a baby and every time there's a transition, whether it's to preschool or whether it's to the school system or whether it's to junior high and then to high school, uh, don't take it for granted that because you've said it over and over, that everybody either gets it or understands it. It's impossible for a hearing person who has had language and access to uh, sound from birth to understand what not having access to that sound means. And even some people say, well, it's like learning in another language. No, it isn't. Because if you're learning in another language, you're hooking it onto the language you already have. And so if you don't have any language, there's nothing to hook it to. And so that process of developing language is what, as a team, parents and professionals and kids, we strive to do 
for our, our children so that they can be on par with the kids with hearing. And I think that we've come so far in terms of technology. And I don't know if you have this in the States, but in, in Canada, we have screening at birth for hearing loss. Yes. I don't know if that's, if you have that. We now. do mm-hmm. in so, the hospitals. That's how I found out about my two boys is they failed their newborn hearing screen in the hospital. And then we were referred to a longer audiology test, which was like two hours. And, you know, it was like a more in-depth to, to, I guess, measure, you know, what type of hearing loss, you know, that they had, but yes, we do. And I would say, you know, organizations in the United States that work within the, you know, hearing loss community definitely advocate for getting the hearing loss screening with your newborn very highly. So yes, that is something that we do. And then that's your first shock. What do I do? Yes. (laughs) Yes, that is. (laughs) That's true. It is a shock. What do you, what do you do? And, you know, professionals rush in with their mountain of information and, and your first reaction is, my baby can't hear. How, how do I deal with this? And yeah. you're getting bombarded with too much information. And I think the first thing you need to do is to say, slow down here, folks. <laughs> I have yeah. other things I need to deal with first. Yeah. Teach me what's most important. And then we'll go from there. And as you know, a lot of people think you put the hearing aid on and it's like glasses corrects your vision, it corrects your audition sense. And we know it doesn't. It's a learning process. You know, babies don't come out talking. <laughs> they they learn to recognize sounds. And that's the first thing that, you know, even perception of sound. And I think it's in, as a, an advocate for your child, you also have to advocate for yourself. Here's what I need to know now. What's the best way to interact with my baby? How do I put these hearing aids on if I'm putting them on at birth? Decisions to make a cochlear implant are, they're surgical decisions. It's a huge, huge decision. And while it may be easy for us as professionals to say, well, I would do this and this and this, we're not the parent. And you have to be comfortable with what you're doing and know you can't always know the long-term repercussions, but at least you need to know the short-term ones and how that's going to affect you. Parents of children who have a hearing loss have an uphill climb. It's not easy. And family members don't always understand that. They don't understand the frustrations and the disappointments and the overwhelm. And they don't always see the small successes that you have. They give you such great joy when your child says "Mm -hmm," for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) So when I think of advocacy, I think it's, it's not a one and done deal. And there's no one size fits all for every parent. There is no picture of a child who is deaf or a parent of a deaf child. We're, we're all individuals and you have to see what your child needs. You, know, you, you mentioned you have one child who functions very well with his cochlear implant, another child who uses sign language as a, 
has a cochlear implant, but it's sound awareness, not speech perception so much. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the one tool doesn't always work for every child. And I think you're a very, very good example of that. And as you said earlier, you had to start early and build on that foundation. So you didn't give up when right. your child went to preschool. Said, okay, here's, your, here's what has to happen in my preschool for my child to succeed. And I will be the thorn in your side until you make it happen. And we often see, I know preschools are noisy. And when teachers put on the FM system, they're thinking, okay, it's, it's making all this noise louder. But in actual fact, it helps to reduce the noise level. You're not yelling at kids. Right. And, and then you get that direct input to your child with the hearing loss who can actually get that in their ear. Uh, and even teaching teachers in public school to do this properly is, is a challenge. And sometimes a parent has to do it. Sad, but they do. Mm -hmm. Professionals can help. Professionals can go in, but when the professional walks out at the end of the day, it's the parent who has that child coming home at night upset or unable to understand what was happening or not making friends. And it's the parent who has to go into the school or the, whatever the situation is and say, let's, how can we make this work? Not in an adversarial approach because people get entrenched <laughs> in their ideas, in their situations and their what's best. But as in a, I know you want to help me help my child. How can we do this together? And I'm, I know that you're very skilled at that approach. And, and probably teaching that through your podcast to parents. Yes. And, and it has taken time. I mean, and that is something that I like to talk about. <clears throat> it's the foundation of building the relationships with your IEP team or with the team that is serving your kids, which is hard. Uh, well, sometimes I think there's a couple of things. Number one, Parents are already receiving information from other parents before they go into that first IEP meeting that this is going to be a fight. So like that's the message that they already have. And so parents on their one hand are going in prepared to have to be really aggressive and argue with everyone because that is what they've been told that they have to do. And then I, th I think from the other side, from the educator side is they have a parent coming in who is being really aggressive about wanting this, this, and this. And I understand that the educators are trying to think about how is what the parent is asking for going to fit into the school day, going to fit in with the staff that we have, because I know it's not our, uh, the parent's fault, but we are largely understaffed in special yeah. education. And unfortunately, there is a lot of turnover in special education staff. People quit a lot and aren't retained a lot. There's a lot of turnover. I mean, I know in our county in North Carolina, I can go on the job board at any time. And all of the open positions are special education. And a lot of the open positions in our area are teacher of the deaf speech therapist, physical therapist. I mean, even more, I'm like not even hardly seeing openings for like math teacher, <laughs> English teacher. It's like, they've got those covered. They, and you know, to the school's credit, they are trying to build a more robust special education 
you know, team to help the students, you know, so I think the educators are like, whoa, this parent is coming in really aggressive. And then, so then that makes the educators have to be aggressive back. And so you're just, you're starting the meeting kind of uh, like against each other. And what I want to move everybody to try to do is to change the mindset around the meeting, because that really helped me when I went into the meeting saying, I already know that there's a problem. I already know that my children are not on grade level for communication. So they're not telling me anything that I don't already know about my kids. So what we're going in to do is we're going in to find a solution together. But I would really like to inform parents about what do they not know about the school system? Because I think parents are going in saying, I want this, I want this. And the educators are saying, whoa, whoa, okay, like, what does that practically mean during the day? Like, what are what are we going to be doing with the child? What are the goals that are like going to come from this? How does this work with their day school routine? Because I know on the educator side as well, one of the concerns is the child having too much time outside the classroom. And we've had to balance that with our kids too, because my kids are pretty high need and we are constantly having to balance. And their teachers are coming in saying, hey, if we could cut down on blah, blah, blah service, like just like by an hour or so a week because they're really missing a lot of class time. You know, so we're working on, we don't want them to miss like too much class time, but they also need to help. So it's a constant balance. And I understand that because my background is in education, but the average parent, you understand your child, but they don't understand where the educators are coming from. You know what I mean? So I would love to talk about what, what do you see that parents don't understand about the educator side and they need to understand when they're asking for these things? And what compromise can you make? Because sometimes if the child can't access the curriculum because they don't have those skills, sitting in a classroom is not where they should be. They need the the one-on-one support to be able to access that curriculum. And, and you're absolutely right. You come from it from an educator's perspective as well as a parent. But many parents are, A, they're intimidated by this big group of professionals sitting around saying, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that. And maybe feel backed into a corner because you knew, you know what your child needs and yet you know your child won't get everything that they need. And so it's, as you said before, it's what's the solution? What's the best solution at this moment for my child? And how can we make that happen? Is it reducing an hour? Is it adding an hour? Is it having a peer mentor? Is it, you know, what is it? What kind of support? But I think parents need, you know, like it could be little things, like advocate for, good placement for your child in the classroom, not at the back near the door with an open corridor where people are making a lot of noise or by a window where they can't lip read, (laughs) Um, but the placement even, you know, small things. Ask the teacher to make sure they make eye contact before they give instructions. Uh, Ask the teacher to wear the technology, to use it. You know, small things that you can advocate for that can help your child. Even for young children, you know, you have lots of teachers who like the technology. 
So teach them how to change the hearing aid battery because those little fingers can't do that. And batteries <laughs> run out. <laughs> so, and to test to see if it's actually working. And there are so many little things that parents can advocate for that makes it, I don't want to say, appear as if you're gaining ground, um, but it certainly makes you feel that you're supporting the school a lot more. And I think the school feels more supported when you're willing to say, well, I know you can't do this, but can you do this? So it's, it's not advocating by walking around the school with placards or pounding on the principal's desk. That generally doesn't get you anywhere. Sometimes you do have to do that. There are, there are certainly times you have to do that. Better service when you know that the money might have been directed in another way when it could have been directed to help your child. There are always needs in a school. And that has to be balanced out. There's no question about that. So when I think of advocacy, I think of, hmm, okay, what's the best thing for my child? And what's the best way to help make that happen? And what can I do? Parents are busy. They're, they're not sitting around um, planning every day out for <laughs> you know, for everything. And they're they're going to work, they're shopping, they're doing their laundry, they're cleaning their house, they're organizing homework, what everything that parents do, and mostly mothers in yeah. most homes. I have to give credit where credit is due. Not there are many fathers who are also a part of, of support, but generally it's the mother who who offer who looks for that kind of support. But it could even be you know, let me ask a friend over, or if you're using a sign in the school, let, let's do a little class, you know, once a week, twice a week, where you teach a little sign, uh, where you do, you know, that doesn't have to be extensive conversation, but it can be basic communication. And kids, particularly in the elementary age, love that. They love learning something like that it's and and communicating so those are kind of the little things that you could ask to do maybe you could even go into a classroom and show the teacher how you read a book to your child and read it to the class but how do you read this book to your child with hearing loss so that they can actually understand what's going on it it could be little things i'm, I'm not saying parents have to be teachers but they are doing things at home that they can share with the school. Yeah, I agree with that. And I've had some parents on the podcast who have done that, who have gone in, you know, for an hour or two and have read, you know, a book about, you know, there, there's several out on Amazon that are great about a book about, you know, a childhood hearing aids or childhood cochlear implants or science, you know, whatever is there's, there's several really good children's books out there that I might link some in the show notes for parents, but they took a book in and they read the book to the kids, the child is in elementary school. And then they taught the kids like a few signs mm -hmm. and that's great. And I agree with you that that just starts spreading awareness because kids are so open to learning. And honestly, teachers are too. Teachers love it because it gives them something a little extra to do in the classroom. They, I mean, 
I've never met a teacher that didn't love if a parent <laughs> or a volunteer wanted to come in for an hour and, you know, do something that would enrich their class because also the teacher, you know, you don't know everything in the world either. Right. And we're not supposed to, I mean, that's kind of, everybody has their specific, you know, skill set and what they're good at. And teachers are great at their curriculum, but like bring in the firefighter to talk about, cause I don't know about firefighting, but they do. And it's still important for kids to know. So, you know, going into your child's classroom and bringing in some different professionals or other people who have, you know, different experiences is great. And I think most teachers love the enrichment in their classroom. And something that I think is important that you and I have talked about before that I think parents don't know and kind of assume um, is that a lot of school systems don't know how to support deaf and hard of hearing kids very well. And especially most teachers don't. And from what I have understood, it's not taught in length in the curriculum when you're talking about um, a special education curriculum, you know, for special education teachers that deaf and hard of hearing is not taught extensively. It's certainly not taught anywhere in like the regular, you know, first grade teacher, second, like elementary ed curriculum at all. And it definitely wasn't, I was a high school Spanish teacher and I had a couple of kids with IEPs, but like very easy, like extra time on tests or something very easy, but I didn't I learned about IEPs through my kids. I knew nothing about them at being a teacher in school. And that was not part of my teacher training when I was taught how to be a high school Spanish teacher or any kind of high school teacher. Um, so I think there's a misconception right there that parents think and parents are going in aggressive because they don't understand that the professionals aren't necessarily taught this, but That's they think true. that they are. <laughs> That's true. And because the whole area of special education is so broad yes they can in a in any program that's not particularly focused on on deafness all you all you get is like an hour and i've i've taught in those programs so i know how it works you might get an hour on learning disabilities and or a class on learning disabilities and then a class on deafness and then you know all of the, and there are just so many, the whole range of uh, disabilities and challenges is so broad. Special education is is a very, very broad topic. And no, there is no one right answer for every child, but there are some basic things, I guess, approaches, strategies that yes. not only work for the child who is deaf or hard of hearing, they work for every child in the room. So if the child doesn't need um, print or a visual, they'll ignore it. But if they do need it, they'll certainly use it. Mm -hmm. If the child doesn't need to be sitting so they're not facing a window, uh, then, then that's fine. They, you know, you you set your set child's children up for success, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes the parent, the squeaky wheel gets to grease. And just the fact that as a parent, you're seen in, in, as involved in your child's education means that your child will likely get more attention. That's just the way it works. 
the parent who never shows up, the parent who says, well, the school knows best, uh, that child will probably not get the same, I don't want to say level of service, but this, those those little, the little tweaking of the service that a teacher might do or an administrator might suggest or the allocation of funding or resources in such a way, it can, it, it can, it can just fall by the wayside if you're not involved. Yeah. We, we'd love to say, let's just send our kids to school because that's what the school does. But you and I are both educators and we know it doesn't work that way. And you know that the parent who's on your doorstep is the one you're going to say, try to make it work a little better so they're not on your doorstep as often. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, but, and you know, everyone is busy and so are the educators. And I, I think that's something that educators need to understand that parents are really busy. They don't have hours to like prep for this IEP meeting, you know, all the time, but then parents need to understand that educators are trying to educate more than just your child and your child needs their services for sure. They need a fair and appropriate education. Absolutely. But they're also trying to balance a whole school of kids who also need service. And, you know, like you said, special education is so broad. I'm curious if or why this doesn't happen. So, you know, when you become a teacher, you have to choose, do I want to do elementary education? Do I want to do high school education? Do I want to, you know, specialize in like English high school? Like I did Spanish high school. Like you don't get just like a regular teaching degree. Like you have to specialize. And so I'm interested in why there's not more specialization or is there an avenue for that? Because it makes sense to me that if I'm going through special education, I would choose, okay, do I want to specialize in kids who have like neurodivergency? Do I want to specialize in kids who, ha who have autism? Because, you know, a kid who has ADHD, a kid who has autism, a kid who is deaf and hard of hearing, a kid who has like emotional dysregulation, are all handled differently. <laughs> and, and so I understand, and what I want parents to understand is special education teachers are learning everything and it's impossible to be an expert in every single condition that might come your way. And I think a, a lot of that has to do, you know, you learn from like on the job training, which I found out as a teacher, I learned a lot in the classroom, but I learned a lot more when I was actually working with kids and some stuff changed. <laughs> Some stuff that I learned in the classroom didn't apply <laughs> when I was actually the teacher. But yeah, and so I am curious why that specialization doesn't occur in, you know, the special education world. Why when kids or, you know, students are going through and they say, okay, I want to do special education, why they don't specialize further into, like, I guess, a specific area. Or is there an even avenue for that? Because that that would make sense to me. It's like, okay, you become the expert in autism. You become the expert in, you know, emotional, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I guess from the point of view of, of a university program that teaches teachers, yeah, the undergraduate degree is, there are different strategies for, obviously, for elementary. So you, you do separate um you know, do you want to teach elementary? Or do you want to teach high school? 
because yeah. generally in high school, you're not teaching reading strategies. Hope well, you are, but you don't think you are. <laughs> and in Canada, anyway, the special training occurs at the master's level. So you get your general okay. education degree, whether it's in elementary or uh, secondary education. So you either teach elementary, junior high, or you teach junior high, high school. Right. The, the training beyond that is at the master's level. So our okay. program at Mount St. Vincent University has, it, it does have, there's a program, a stream you can go into at the master's level that's serving learners with diverse needs. So that neurodivergency you were talking about. And then there's a program for teaching students who are deaf or hard of hearing, another program for visual, visually impaired kids, autism. We don't have a program specifically for autism specialists, but there are programs in other universities. So you have to really search for those at the master's level. And I think that that is because they are so in depth. A training at the undergraduate level in how to develop speech and language with a child who is deaf is just too intensive to provide that and then provide a general approach to teaching curriculum, developing right. lesson plans, developing reading strategies, developing math strategies. <clears throat> so when you add the extra information on top of that, it's, it's yeah. just too much of a program. So that becomes the master's level. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The master's is a specialization. Okay. That makes well, sense. Thank that you does, for answering that question for me. Two, I'm sure other parents wonder that too. <laughs> well, we have two programs that are master's degrees in Canada for teaching uh, kids who are visually impaired or uh, deaf and hard of hearing. One is on the East Coast. The other is on the West Coast. Okay. And that's it. There is mm -hmm. another program in Ontario, but it's a diploma. It's not a master's level you do have to have your teacher's license first, but then it's a diploma course. And I am learning that there are many universities in the States that did have programs in, in, that, in our specialized area that are dropping them. So the numbers of universities offering training in these areas is being reduced, which yeah, I find alarming because we, to me that speaks to, well, we have better technology and better uh, early intervention. So we don't need those teachers anymore. Right. That's not true. That isn't true. We need to enhance what we know by having more people trained in this area, to my mind. Yeah, I agree. And I think you're right. The technology, while great, I mean, I am appreciative that my kids have cochlear implants. I wouldn't change that for our family. But I think it's muddying the waters a little bit of the deaf and hard of hearing world because, like you said, a lot of even parents, too, are saying, okay, if I get my kid hearing aids or cochlear implants, they'll be able to hear and that will fix it. And I think I was a little under the impression of that, too. I didn't understand the nuance until... I got my kids cochlear implants, which I said, I'm still happy to do. They like having the access to, you know, listening language. I'm glad we did it because they can always choose not to use it in the future. So for our family, that was right. 
we did think about it a lot. It is a big, it is a major surgery and it's not something to be taken lightly. So we did do a lot of research and ask questions with our, you know, audiologists and speech therapists and our ENT who were involved. But I think, you know, at the beginning, I was under the impression like, okay, my child is going to get cochlear implants. He's going to be able to hear. Yep. We're going to have to do some speech therapy and then he's going to be caught up. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't been the case. And a lot of the speech therapists told me, I mean, to be honest, I asked the question, when do kids normally catch up? And they were like, oh, by kindergarten or first grade, a lot of them don't need us anymore. And honestly, I've talked to a lot of parents where their kids have kind of closed that speech gap by the time they're in kindergarten and first grade. So that does happen with my kids. That didn't happen. My seven-year-old is still, he talks well, but he still doesn't talk as fluently as, you know, hearing seven-year-old does. He still doesn't use quite the range of vocabulary and he still has to process. So it takes him like longer to respond because he has to hear and then he has to process what you said. And then he has to process his response. And all of that is a little bit slower in him than in one of his friends who are regular hearing, I guess, have been going through that process earlier than he was. And then, of course, my five-year-old who uses sign language never caught up with speech. And I didn't realize, so I had him, that cochlear implants can not give you full access to language because I thought, once again, I thought that they were a silver bullet kind of, and, oh, the tech, you know, they're going to have hearing and they're going to be able to talk. And then, you know, my five-year-old uses sign language and come to find out it is not giving him full access to sound and that's okay. But I just didn't realize that there's nuances in the technology. And I agree with you. I think that is falling away as they're saying, okay, we don't need these programs. And I wonder if professionals or people students who are going into this are also like thinking okay well kids can hear now there isn't as much quote deaf meaning like maybe capital d deaf where there's no aids no access to hearing and so they're like well if there's access to hearing then i think they treat it more as like a speech therapy thing yes no you know what i mean like okay now we just need a speech therapy Yeah, that speech is not language, and people get mixed up with that as well. Yes. (laughs) Speech is is the production of language, but it is not language. Mm -hmm. And and speech is articulation, whereas language is that that full range of expressive and receptive understanding. And so people do, and I think administrators make decisions and they don't understand these nuances that you talked about. When I think a lot of parents don't either. No. (laughs) You know, I I don't understand. You can't advocate for something you don't fully understand. And by the time you understand it, it's seven years later. And there's been all of that time, you know, that hasn't been addressed. Yeah. It's it's not, there's no easy answer. There isn't. Yeah. But certainly, I think the, the more parents educate themselves, and understand the needs of, of their child, not just right now, but in the future, then I think they can start to be prepared. What is my child yeah. going to need at the next level? When they go to high school, are they going to need a note taker so that they can function and focus on what the teacher's saying, not try to 
watch, listen, and write? Are they going to need to be able to use AI better? How, how, what is it my child needs to make them function better at each stage of development? Yeah, and so it sounds like what you're saying for parents is, number one, we need to trust ourselves. Because I think a, a lot of parents have, we have trouble trusting that we can actually make a good decision for our kids, that we do, we don't have to know the whole educational system, we just have to know our kid, just have to know our kid, and then you just have to be able to tell the team, this is what works at home, this is what we're doing at home, how can we recreate to some degree the best um, of what um, works yeah the best of the best of what works into the classroom you know what does that mean for the goals in the classroom I feel like when you when we can tell parents you just have to know your child and you don't have to know the whole school system should bring a really big sigh of relief because I think a lot of parents are going into the IEP process saying I have to learn how this entire educational system works and that I mean that's a lot to put on yourself <laughs> as a, a parent. And it's, you know, almost uh, unreasonable to think that, yeah. that you have some, to do that. Some children need a lot more parental support than others do. And, yeah. and some, you, that's what I say when you, you need to know your child. And I think that well, parents yeah. are the best um, person to do that. Although I also know that children often behave differently in a school yes. environment than they do in the home environment. Yes, they do. Mine do. Yep. So Fortunately, fun. they like behave a little bit better in the school system than they do at home, which I'm thankful for. Yes. But I think something that parents get caught up in, I'm curious because you've had a live experience in this. I think every deaf and hard of hearing kid needs accommodations and accommodations what I'm talking about is like preferential seating in the classroom, you know, making sure that the teacher is using the, we have like a mini microphone, a microphone or an FM system, you know, making sure that the preferential seating is not only in the front, but also like you were saying, have like visual access to the teacher so they can see them, you know, training the teacher to not talk to the board, but like talk <laughs> out yes. to the class, which is an easy switch, but just, you know, the teacher just has to think about it a little bit more, but not all deaf and hard of hearing kids necessarily need extra like academic help because mm -hmm. I have no, so, so some of my kid, my kids need a little bit of extra academic help because of their syndrome that they have caused the hearing loss, but also caused like a general you know, kind of behind and milestones. And so they do. But I have also talked to other parents whose kids needed the accommodation to get access to language, but they don't need academic help. Like, you know, as long as they have the, you know, accessible language, then they are fine and they haven't fallen behind in school. Of course, they're always monitoring them. But I have talked to a lot of parents who said, my child didn't qualify for an IEP because they weren't behind, like they were on grade level as far as their academics. And I think every parent is told that your child has to have an IEP and no. has to have academics. So I think that's where a lot of the argument is coming from is parents are saying, my child needs an IEP, they need academic help. And the school is saying, your child 
does not need an IEP. Your child may need like an accommodation in the classroom for accessibility, but your child does not need an IEP because your child is not behind academically. And parents are like, well, they need it anyway, just in case. And the school system's like, that's not how we work. And here's the argument. <laughs> so can we help the parents understand that not every child may need an IEP? No, and it's also important to know that the sometimes the IEP is a discrimination in itself. And what we want is our kids to be accepted and able to work to the best of their ability and to perform as well as they can. So you're absolutely right. If academically they're doing well, they're doing well because of accommodations, but those don't necessarily have to mean an I, an individualized program. It just means the accommodations need to be in place. And as you said, many of those accommodations are simple. They're, yes. They don't have to have somebody sitting beside them all the time saying, okay, write this down. They may need an interpreter. It could be an oral interpreter. Uh, it could be a sign language interpreter, but they may not. Uh, they may be, prefer signed English as opposed or signed word order. So mm -hmm. as opposed to ASL, sure. which as you know, is an entirely different language. Yes. And that is actually what we do with our five-year-old is we do ASL signs and English word order right now. So we do not actually do the full language of ASL. We use the individual signs and we chose that. Number one, because that felt like an easy access point for us as a family yes. to be able to learn. Number two, he is he does hear some words because as we've been using the signs, he's actually been talking more yeah. and say, and producing more spoken speech. So we're kind of basically using the signs as like a visual access to what we're saying. And we wanted, we felt like that would be the best way right now to help him like learn to read. Because he's in kindergarten where you start learning the alphabet and learning to read. He's learning the alphabet in sign language. But we felt like the English word order because we want him to be able to read in English word order. Later, and that's what I also want parents to know, is that all this can change later on. We might change to the full language of ASL. And, you know, there's a spectrum here. And there's absolutely a spectrum. And, and your child can move on that spectrum. Yeah. And so can you, they may need something at one, at one point and they don't need it at another, they need something different. And so to be open to that and to be open to that discussion. The other thing I might say is I think that isolation for many children with hearing loss becomes an issue in schools, either isolation because they are pulled out as a pullout model or isolation because they have difficulty making friends. And as a parent, I think I would try to have a friend for that child and work with the teacher to identify somebody in the class who could be that child's friend. I don't mean a caregiver. And sometimes, sometimes it, it gets, oh, I have to look after you. I don't mean that. I mean a friend, let's go play ball. <laughs> let's play Lego, whatever, uh, not here, I'll help you, because we do not want to encourage uh, helplessness. Yes. And I think that's a very important thing for 
public school teachers and kids to know your child's not helpless. Your child just needs support. And giving that support will help that child succeed. Yeah, I love that. We have and, done that. Well, kind of, so my seven-year-old, he, so the school that they go to is kindergarten through 12th grade. So it is elementary, middle, and high school. So, you know, he started in kindergarten. And so, you know, essentially all the kids are going to move together through kindergarten to high school, which is also great because the kids have a long time to learn about deaf and hard of hearing and hearing loss and what that means and how to give access and how to think about accommodating people who have different needs than your own. So I think there's a lot of learning that can be done to the other kids too. But in kindergarten, he became friends. He's still like his best friend with a girl in his kindergarten class and they like just kind of hit it off. But we, the teachers, especially last year in first grade, because they've always been like in the same class, have had to have some like talks with her and tell her to back away a little bit because she started wanting to do everything for my son, who is very capable. And we agree, we want to support him, but we also want to hold him to a high standard. He is capable of doing this work and he is doing it. And she would start like doing stuff for him. Yeah. And so yeah, the teachers had to kind of help her understand what it means to be a friend and that we, but like, we need to let him do some things for himself that he is capable. So I agree. We've done that too. And there it is sounds like, like you have a really good relationship with your child's teachers. We do. And that's what I want people to understand is a lot of this, the foundation of this is relationship building. And that is what I have focused on, because like you said, it's like this, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease, but also you catch more flies with honey. That's what my grandmother used to say. And so also the parent who is not only present, but is, you know, like you said, uh, willing to have discussions is, you know, willing to strike a balance understanding that maybe not a hundred percent of everything can happen at school but what is what is the most important things that will move the needle in your child's education because we can also put too much in the IEP and that's the thing too is like in to where it becomes unreasonable to expect a child to learn all of these goals and it, it has been relationship building where I have spoken to their teachers from like preschool almost every day I check in with them I also check in with the teachers. I recognize that they're real people. They also have kids. They also have families. And I ask them about their families. I ask them about their kids. I ask them about what are their summer plans? What are their, you know, Christmas plans? What are their Thanksgiving plans? How are you getting along in school? Like I talk to them like the humans that they are and recognizing that they have more of a life than just taking care of my child too. And I'm always, you know, my five-year-old's teacher of the deaf, we talk on this app called Class Dojo. July parents will probably know what that is. She and I send messages almost every day. She sends me pictures of what he's doing. She tells me what he's doing. You know, I answer back, that's so great. I'll tell her if he, like, does something really fun at home or, you know, he uses, like, a sign at home that we've been practicing. I tell her about it. So I, I am in contact with the team almost every day during the school year over something. And so then I find 
when it's time for me to ask for an accommodation or, or, you know, I start saying, Hey, I noticed this happening at home. I hear about this happening in school. Can we talk about it? Because not everything has to be like an official IEP meeting. I'm just like, can we talk about, you know, how can we fix this at school or how, you know, how can we change this a little bit? And so I start talking to them about it and start telling them what I'm thinking and asking for their feedback so that when we do get to an IEP meeting, we've already talked and they already know what I'm going to ask for. (laughs) They already know what I'm thinking. So I'm not surprising them. And they're already thinking, how can we make it work? Or if we can't make it work, what else can we do? Right. Because it's when you come out with like, you don't talk to anybody at all. And you come in an IEP meeting with, I need this for my child, this for my child, this for my child. And they, the team hasn't had time to think about how is this like practically going to work at school? I think that's where a lot of the the back and forth goes comes into. And and I think maybe that's a training that some parents may need. They're not used to making those kinds of connections or opening yeah. those lines of communication. They and it, it depends who they're communicating with. Sounds like you have a great yes. team that you're working with. I'd like to say that all teams are like that. We know they're not. Yeah. But I think for parents to learn, to have a friend, (laughs) to jump on your podcast with you and say, you need help with this. What can I say to the teacher when I approach them? What, write me a script. (laughs) I'll practice that script. Write it, write it out for me. And Mm -hmm. when they go to that IEP meeting, if they're not feeling comfortable, take a friend, take, take your girlfriend, take, take your best friend, have, you know, take your husband, take your mother, take your take somebody that you feel supported by yeah because it can be intimidating if you have you know seven or eight professionals around saying well your child needs this 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 and this or doesn't need this or this so you're either advocating for or against services or things that they want to do but in the best way possible so yeah and I always tell parents to ask questions (laughs) yeah And ask questions because a lot of times what happens and they don't mean to, but I've actually given this as feedback to professionals is the IEP team members, they start talking to like kind of to themselves in the IEP meeting and they're using like educational jargon. You know, they're using the words that they use every day in their job because this is a job to them. Like they're getting paid to do this. This is their career. And it's almost like sometimes the professionals know too much. Also, and that kind of, I think, works against the professionals a little bit because they're thinking, oh, do this, 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 and they almost make it too complicated sometimes than it needs to be because you almost know like too much information. But, you know, they're saying, oh, your child needs this and blah, 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 but they're not putting it in words that parents understand. And so I say, parents, if you don't understand when they say, you know, we're going to use this, this goal, and you don't understand what that goal is, because they're not putting it in like regular (laughs) words. Language, they jargonize everything. Yeah, Yeah, just stop them and say, hey, can you explain what that means? I mean, even if this IP meeting takes like three hours, and you get them to explain everything, say, can you explain what my child is like actually going to be doing? You know, ask all the questions that you need to, to make sure you come out understanding exactly like what your child is going to be doing in school. 
right? If if the professional says, I don't know, behavioral dysfunction, okay, tell me what that looks like. What is my child doing? Yeah. Tell me what that means. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Explain it to me. And not to feel that you're dumb because you don't know that. It's it's not terms you use. You're not trained for it. Mm-hmm. You're not trained for it. it. It's like going to a surgeon and he's he's using these you know, 90 cent words. And, and all you want him to do is explain what it is in little words so you can understand it. <laughs> yeah. So ask the questions. And if you're not comfortable with asking those questions, have somebody with you who can say, did, did you think that maybe? <laughs> because sometimes that you're so intent on trying to understand what people are saying and trying to uh, get what your child needs that you miss those little nuances that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like the keys, if we were going to break this down into some final steps for parents, it sounds like what we're saying is the key is that you first need to trust yourself. So go through a little bit of like a mindset shift that you can make good decisions for your child. Make sure you have the information. Yes. Yes. And then maybe do a little bit of an assessment on your own child to say what is working at home. Mm-hmm. What's and it doesn't have to be detailed. And be, you know, do it. if you give him a three-step direction, can he follow it at home? Yeah. Um, things, it doesn't have to be complicated. Right. And so think about, okay, what are my child's strengths? What are my child's weaknesses? And also think about, so number maybe four step would be begin with the end in mind. So as parents, we're thinking about, okay, what do I eventually want my child to do when they turn 18 and they're done with school? So I'm thinking like long-term and yes. then I take that to the IEP team and then they help me break it up into goals each year, but I give them the long-term plan. So I'm like zoomed out on the plan and they're zoomed in on the plan. And that's how we can work together. Exactly. Right. Because I know the long-term plan, but they can help me with the individual steps to get to the long-term plan. Absolutely. So sometimes you have to direct the steps as a parent. Right. Um, yeah. And so that it's your, you're, you're like the manager here, like the puppeteer, puppeteer, you're pulling the strings and, and everybody mm-hmm. else is, is doing what they should be doing. But you're the case manager for your child. There's nobody else. So you you are the one who has to hold the reins and guide people to to get them to that long-term goal that you want. And too often, I think we get focused as as educators on what has to happen this term for the child. And we don't think, okay, at the end of the year, I want them to be able to do X, Y, and Z. So we don't have that long range goal. Yeah. But the parents can have the long range goal because they're dealing with their kids every day. And parents are looking at the long range goal. I mean, that's how I parent my kids too, is I'm looking at the long range of like, what skills do I want my kids to have so that when they're 18 or 19 or whatever, and they move out of the house, they can be functional adults. So what am I teaching them now to get them to that point? So I also parent with the end in mind saying like, okay, I'm raising adults. I'm not raising like adult children who are going to be dependent on me. So what am I 
teaching them now a little bit as we go along so that they have some functional skills <laughs> when they get out <laughs> of the house. You know, they, they have functional skills and problem solving skills or whatever to be an adult. And you're kind of doing that with the IEP and you can for the year, you can be like, by the end of the year, I would like my child to be able to blah, blah, blah. And I think parents are really good at, at providing the longer term goal. And then the team can work with you to get those smaller step-by-step -step goals. Does that make it's sense? Not, Does that feel like that makes sense? It makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> it's not always going to be easy. <laughs> no, no. But it's, yeah. But it's worth it. It's worth it because it's That's the true. best for your child. Yeah. So, And if you don't try, then the school system is going to make the decision for you. So, I mean, it's all about trying and you may not hit it right. And like you said, it is a constant flow, you know, and you learn more, you know what I mean? You know, if there's a roadblock, yeah. you find a way around it. If there's a mountain, you go over it. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, there's a hill, you slide downhill and then you go up. And <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no easy direct route. Right. to success. But, you know, I think as long as you keep those, as you said, build the relationships, keep the communication open and be involved. Yeah. And sometimes it's harder for some than for others. And sometimes parents don't know how to ask those questions or even how to talk to that team of educators. Mm -hmm. so, um, I think the service you're, you're doing is, is wonderful for parents. Oh. In the absence of parent groups, I think parents need a place to go. Mm -hmm. They really do. It, it's important. I've, I've given your website to the seminar that I teach with oh. the, the program. So you. <laughs> you see some Canadians hooking in. Oh, fun. <laughs> Thank you. That's so fun. I love it. Well, I... So appreciate you coming on. I think you have given our parents so much information to think about and so much information. I think we busted a lot of myths <laughs> that, you know, parents thought, you know, and weren't true or were true. And so I think we've answered a lot of questions from parents that hopefully they can go forward in an IEP meeting and understand a few more things that they didn't understand from like either side before. So I really appreciate you coming on and doing that for our parents. Me. Today. I'd be happy to do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like we have so much we can talk about. <laughs> um, but I would love for you to quickly tell parents, what are you doing now? And where can they find your business? Because I know that you have a business with your daughter that might be helpful for parents. It's, it's The business is not particularly focused on uh, kids who are deaf, but could do kids who are deaf, done assessment well, with Sometimes parents have like kids who are deaf plus, yeah. like my kid, you know, the hearing loss is a part, but then there's also other, you know, concerns, challenges, other things. And, and that's what we find with our kids too. So I think this is definitely still valuable, even though it's not specific to hearing loss, you know, a child may have like a wider syndrome, like my kids do where other things are going on too. Well, where my daughter and I have a business called Education Advantage. And we have a website. Uh, I, I put it in the bio when I sent that in to you. So I'm focusing mm -hmm. on assessments, academic assessments, tutoring. And now we're going to be moving into developing some online courses, such as in how to study, um, how to 
prioritize, how to, even down to simple things like how to use flashcards the right way so that you study. How do you answer an, an essay question? And trying to teach those skills that are so important in doing tests, how to reduce your test anxiety. Um, and it, we'll be offering some sort of some free workshops and then we'll be offering some short courses as well. So that's that's the, that's the direction we're headed in and we're pretty excited about it. And um, just in our beginning stages here, developing, but mm -hmm. uh, always something to keep me busy. Yeah, <laughs> like you need anything else to keep you busy, Joyce. <laughs> oh, I always do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. We appreciate, I love it. I love it. you know, yeah. what you're doing for education in Canada and just overall um we need like I said we need people like you <laughs> and we need and the education system who, oh thank are, you are out there communicating with parents mm -hmm. you know technology has brought us uh, a huge way to meet parents it used to be we had to yeah travel long distances to to bring parents mm -hmm. together and now you know through it's it's not as good as being connected individually and personally but it helps you know it, it's mm -hmm. a virtual uh, resource that that we're certainly using and and I think you'll see more of it in terms of working with kids who have hearing loss and helping them access some of the the programs the teenage programs really that they need to connect with and and yeah you know teenage connections yeah mm -hmm. yeah I, I, I love that I, I focus on teenage because that's all, that's been my the area I've always really worked in and and I love teenagers oh <laughs> I'd be crazy, but I love them. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. I'm coming to you when my kids are teenagers. Um, no, I did. I I used to work in high school too, and I really I I liked my teenagers that I worked with a lot. They were a lot of fun. Completely different. Completely, <laughs> completely different. different from working with elementary yeah. and even middle school. They're all different stages, yes. <laughs> for sure. Well, yes. I appreciate it, Joyce, coming on today. Thank Is you. It's there... been fun. Yes, it was so much fun. One last question. If there is one last thing that you can leave with parents, one last like tip or piece of encouragement, what would that be? Things change. Nothing stays the same. And as your child goes through the system, your child will have different needs. You will have different needs. Be open to that. What worked yesterday may not work today. And be open to those changes. Be flexible. I think flexibility is the key. I think that's the only piece of advice that I have to offer, really. Question and be flexible. <laughs> I think that's great. I think, yeah, that covers your entire journey with your kids. It's just be flexible because they're learning and growing humans, right? They're not the same yesterday as they were today and neither are you and you're learning more too and you know, it's all fine. information means means new strategies, new ways of doing things, new approaches, and we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. I so that's so. that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Joyce, for coming thank on. Thank you for podcast. having me. I appreciate it. And and best of luck with your venture. Thank you. Hey Mama. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, would you take 30 seconds and subscribe to this podcast? I never want you to miss an episode and to be without valuable information to help you and your family. 
Also, please leave a quick written review for the show on Apple Podcasts. It lights me up to know this podcast is helping you. Now go check off the rest of your to-do so you can love on your family today. And I'll meet you here every Tuesday and Thursday for podcast episodes to support your whole family in language learning. Ciao, Mama!